Hello, this is Daniel Morris. I'm the Senior Investment Strategist with BNP Paribas Asset Management. Thank you for joining us on our weekly market podcast. This week, I'm joined by Dominic Pialto, the CIO of our fixed income business. And we'll be discussing the outlook for fixed income, how it's reacting to all the changes, central bank moves, uh, economic data, and how his portfolio managers are positioning themselves in this environment. Uh, I will start off, though, with a brief recap of what's happened over the last week. Uh, What we've had, to be honest, is a bit more disappointing than not economic data. If we look at the U.S. GDP, minus 4.8% on an annualized basis, 1.2% for the quarter, which was worse than expected. Uh, In Europe, the fall was 3.8% for the quarter, which would be a 15% annualized decline, uh, which doesn't give us a very positive outlook for how things might look in the U.S. in the second quarter. At the same time, we had purchasing manager indice figures come in that in many cases were at all-time lows. So an environment where the economic data is challenging, At the same time, the message, broadly speaking, that we're getting from governments is that even though they're eager to loosen the restrictions and the lockdowns as soon as possible, they're understandably very cautious about doing that too quickly, wanting to maintain as the priority the health of their citizens. So not likely to see really quick reductions in the restrictions uh, in the Europe or in the U.S. That said, we've still getting earnings from the S&P 500 companies that are still reporting. Generally speaking, still better than expected. So prices around 7% relative to forecast. But of course, the year-on-year change, uh, not very good, minus 12% so far. That said, uh, generally speaking, equity is holding up pretty well. And you might even want to make a bit of a Broadway reference and, and say that equities are defying gravity. And we are, in the short term, still a bit concerned uh, and anticipate there might be a correction ahead of us for equity markets, even though our median term outlook is still quite constructive. Uh, and then finally, if we do look at other more risk-sensitive uh, assets, treasuries, boon yields, generally staying towards the low end of the range, and on the other hand, Italian bond spreads widening. So still a lot of volatility in the markets, even as we think about what's happening on the economic side. One of the key issues, certainly for fixed income investors, is what's going to happen with inflation. On one hand, uh, a lot of factors that would likely push inflation down, oil prices falling just being the most obvious. But on the other side, we think about supply constraints that could arguably be pushing inflation up. And some asset managers are promoting the view not only that inflation is going to return, but could return much more quickly than the markets or investors expect. So now I'm going to turn to you, Dom. Uh, What is your view and how are your team's positions? Well, I would start, Dan, uh, by saying that we uh, on the fixed income side are are taking the other side of that view, to be honest. Um, Near term, we believe that Uh, we're much more likely to see deflation than inflation in the near term. Uh, Longer term, we could indeed see uh, structural forces push inflation higher, but that's not at all today's trade. And it likely shouldn't be one until at least the first quarter of 2021. So sort of walking you through that thesis, 
energy prices, as you said, have collapsed due to an evisceration of crude demand and a subsequent massive buildup of crude supply. For some background, gasoline and diesel represent about 3.5% of the CPI, which is an index reflecting consumer prices in the U.S. Uh, the fall in motor fuels alone will take headline CPI into the disinflationary territory. And it will keep it near zero for at least the next year or so when year-over-year base effects come into play. Uh, this will also impact things like airfares, although arguably that's hard to test when no one is flying. Um, so looking at the impacts of crude alone, unless you believe that the situation will be sorted out quickly, which we don't, it's really hard to be constructive on inflation generally. A few more arguments on that, moving past crude, uh, lower energy and commodity prices in general will pass through into production costs as well. And we're already seeing the producer price version of CPI, known as CPI, indicating that prices of input materials are also falling. So this means cheaper production costs, which will translate likely into cheaper prices of goods for consumers. Um, now, of course, there are some areas where we do see prices going up. Uh, groceries, medical supplies are certainly two areas that come to mind. But for most goods and services, there are a ton of discounting going on. Uh, firms are so desperate to get cash in to pay their expenses that they're heavily discounting inventory. Um, of course, at least those that are allowed to be open or those that operate online. Um, and when you think about it, you know, those that do reopen in a few weeks, if it's in a few weeks, will probably slash prices pretty significantly just to attract customers who will likely still be uncomfortable entering a store. Um, to make matters worse, inflation is just one of those measures where sentiment and back loops matter a whole lot. Um, as CPI and PPI begin to fall, so will the public's perception of inflation. Those inflation expectations fall, so will future price-setting behavior. And then lastly, I think it's hard to ignore the fact that 30 million jobs, that's an entire decade's worth of gains, were lost in the last six weeks. Uh, as unemployment surges, wages will likely fall as well. Um, there's already some anecdotal evidence of companies cutting salaries, essentially telling employees, uh, we can't afford to pay you 100% of your salary anymore. Just be grateful you have a job. Uh, so that will certainly also reduce production costs further, which will further lower prices. Um, that's the sort of negative feedback loop that we're talking about that will also impact inflation psychology even more so to the downside. If I think about the long term, of course, there are some structural reasons to think inflation uh, can move higher. Central banks, of course, have monetized an enormous part of their national debt. Uh, and with an explosion of entitlement spending coming up right behind it, they probably will have to keep printing money for the foreseeable future. Uh, and that money is either going to end up in higher asset prices, like we saw during the great financial crisis era, or in consumer prices, or potentially both. So we do expect a reversal of globalization as well. Um, key industries will be brought home. Supply chains will no longer route through China as they once did. And national champions will certainly be protected by a lot of countries. This will mean less competition, probably higher production costs, and certainly higher prices. So um, in conclusion, you know, longer term, think sort of 18 months plus out. We certainly worry about inflation, but near term, we would be more prone to watch out for deflation. Thanks, Tom. Um, of course, other than the inflationary impact on bond yields, we have the central bank impact. And in particular, one of the most momentous decisions over the last couple of weeks has been that by the Fed 
uh, to not only purchase treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, but to move into investment-grade corporate bonds and high-yield ETFs. One of the things you talked about the last time you joined us on the podcast was were the challenges for liquidity facing portfolio managers. So I'm curious, has the Fed's decision had an impact on liquidity? Has it made it better or worse? Well, to be sure, the Fed announced uh, a series of unprecedented measures uh, that, that just absolutely changed the landscape, particularly of credit in the U.S. And this can be found as well in a number of areas uh, in, in Europe as well. But the focus in the question, I think, is more in the U.S. So, um, you know, some of these extraordinary steps included uh, a virtually uncapped purchase program for investment-grade corporate bonds. So now you've got the biggest buyer in the world buying an asset class. Uh, there was an expansion of that program, as you mentioned in your question, into, into high-yield ETFs, whose price discount to their actual holdings grew to historic levels uh, at the time of my last podcast when liquidity evaporated in the sector. They've also uh, created uh, multiple so-called Main Street, uh, Main Street lending facilities to lend directly to small businesses. Uh, and they have uh, also restarted the, the, the alphabet soup of crisis era programs to inject liquidity into the system. And this has really been in virtually every single asset class within fixed income, but you definitely see a lot of it in the credit space. Add to that, on the fiscal side, the U.S. is, is on the eve of passing its fourth tranche of what is multiple, multiple trillion-dollar relief programs. So uh, all of this stimulus and these stimulus packages and, and the fact that we're seeing fiscal on top of monetary is, is creating a, a backstop and support to financial markets that has absolutely noticeably boosted sentiment around credit and indeed liquidity that goes along with it. So just to slap some, uh, some figures on this to give you a sense of how things look now, the result's been uh, an investment grade retracement of roughly a third of the spread widening experience since the peak of, uh, of late February. Um, high yield has also recovered, not nearly to the same comparative level which makes perfect sense because this is where most of the economically sensitive issuers live. Um, but taking a step back, your question was more about liquidity, not about spread. So let's, let's talk about liquidity. Um, as we moved into March, uh, again, at the time of my last podcast, the bid-out spread, trade volume, volatility, all spiked to levels surpassing those of 2008. These are the basic ingredients needed for seizing up of liquidity. So the actions of the Fed and lawmakers have definitely quieted the markets immeasurably. Uh, Bid-ask spreads in investment grade, while still elevated, no longer prohibit trading to a degree. And to a degree, there has been some two-way flow returning to the markets. But I would caveat that by saying it's really been largely in names that are considered most liquid. And these were the names that were considered most liquid before the sell-off. So there are definitely the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and it's also limited to those sectors that are not the directly impacted sectors, such as retail and, of course, energy. So it's not, it's not liquidity all over the place. It's really quite selective. Um, additionally, the IG new issue market opened wide open after these announcements, and that's quite important as well. Anecdotally, while these new issuers were brought at much wider spread levels, so higher risk premium was required, they were definitely gobbled up nonetheless. So that's certainly an encouraging uh, point. High yield has, of course, also experienced some improvement in liquidity. But again, sectors that are compromised, and in this space, there are many, 
they continue to sort of trade by appointment. So at least on one hand, all the support that we've got from the Fed in particular has, has helped certainly spreads come in, uh, also liquidity, but at the same time, we have to look at the economics, and I mentioned that the first quarter GDP figure was worse than expected, minus 1.2% for the quarter. Uh, certainly, if you look at forecasts for the second quarter, those numbers are going down, not going up. So how has the evolution of the economic data changed your view on the market, and what are your portfolio managers doing in their portfolios? I think this is a good lesson in how one data point shouldn't really drive portfolio strategies. So, you know, without delving too deeply into the underlying data uh, in, in GDP, which we would leave to, to folks more like yourself, you know, some key takeaways was the, the significant disappointment in, in already low expectations for personal consumption. Personal income and spending was far lower than expected, and this drives a majority of the result. But Bigger picture, unfortunately, it's far too early really to derive any conclusions from from certainly one data point, but even even one as important as GDP, despite the fact that it's backward looking. We're only in the very early stages of this crisis. And as such, you know, the data that explains its impact are just beginning to be released. As you mentioned, Dan, the uh, you know, earnings uh, uh, among the S&P 500 is starting starting in earnest. But nonetheless, we just don't have a clear picture of what the impacts to this point have been. So, um, you know, in short, as investors, we really don't know what the true macro and micro impacts of this self-induced economic coma is going to be for years. You know, therefore, we very much caution a shift in thinking uh, from, from the, just this, this GDP uh, data print, even though, you know, obviously it's, it's a quite important measure. We, we, we put this in the, in, in the contrary of things that we look at, but certainly not on its own. To draw anything from this first quarter GDP figure would suggest that you can guess correctly on a massive list of unknown variables, which we're faced with. And, you know, just to go through some of these, I don't want to be you know, too dour in my thinking, but, you know, we have no idea when the infection and the mobility curves will flatten and turn down. We have no idea how long the various economies of the U.S. or around the globe will remain shut. When they open, we can't really gauge the extent of the deglobalization trade that I spoke about earlier. Uh, we can't yet project a time frame for better testing, uh, which one could argue is a critical requisite for relaxation of restrictions. We also can't predict what consumer sentiment will be, even when stores finally open. As I think through this, I guess it is quite dour, but you know, there's no sense of whether immunity for those who have survived the virus is real and permanent. Um, and as for data, uh, as I mentioned first, you know, this is, this is not simply a first quarter event and the earnings that have just started to roll in uh, are, are no, in no way complete. So in short, we've not really changed anything based on this. We are still quite guarded. Like you mentioned earlier, we think that, uh, that there's not a lot of legs left in this recent rally. It's been largely uh, dependent on uh, the good news of, of uh, monetary and fiscal policy but not necessarily translating into anything from a macro or micro perspective. So, you know, the only thing I'd, I'd leave you with is that we're not just sitting and waiting for data to come in, of course. While trend growth is a critical long-term component of asset price valuation, we know that often markets will move quite independently in the short run. So if we look for a bright spot, uh, I think your second question highlights that bright spot, and that's that there's certainly opportunities in, in, in a number of areas in the credit space because of the backstop. 
Okay, thank you very much. If I can recap a bit what Tom has just shared with us, the first question about whether it's deflation, disinflation ahead, his view is that it's probably more on the deflation side that, yes, you have some pressures uh, for rising prices, but not likely really to be felt until next year. And in the short term, a lot of reasons to think there's going to be more pressure for prices to fall instead of going up. Uh, some good news on the liquidity front, thanks to all the support from the Fed, stimulus packages, uh, fiscal spending has created a backstop for the market, boosted sentiment, boosted liquidity, and that's certainly one of the more encouraging developments over the last couple of weeks. That said, the economic data that we have been getting uh, gives one pause. Uh, it's been worse than expected and not particularly encouraging, especially when we realize or appreciate uh, that we're really still at the early stages of this and we're not going to be able to uh, evaluate the economic impact for some time yet and consequently having, generally speaking, a cautious view on the market. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you again very much for joining us. If you have any further questions, do not hesitate to reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact, uh, and we wish you all a very good week. Thank you. This podcast presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BNP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.